pleasure to be here. First time I visited England, I actually stayed uh, in Oxford for about uh, seven days. There was a summer school down the road at the Magdalen College, and I have very uh, fond memories of that time. And Professor Paul Craig was teaching there, and uh, he is one of the leading authorities on administrative law. Unfortunately, he couldn't make it today. But um, it's a pleasure to be back uh, in a non-student capacity here, and thank you for coming. Uh, I think it's a good activity to do when the weather is like this, uh, to engage yourself in uh, uh, clever intellectual law uh, discussions. So thank you for coming. So the topic today is the law applied by international administrative tribunal, from autonomy to hierarchy. The reason why I became interested in this uh, particular topic uh, was twofold. The first uh, reason was uh, is that I used to work for the Economic Court of the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is uh, based in Minsk, in the capital of Belarus. I come from Belarus originally, and uh, which, among other things, is also dealing with disputes involving, involving international civil servants. So I was involved in advising that court on issues of uh, pension law, on issues of employment law, uh, of uh, employees of uh, the Secretariat of the Commonwealth of Independent States. And the other reason was that my PhD was in international employment law on the one hand, and on the other hand, I spent a few years practicing international arbitration in the United States and here in London, and so I was thinking of an area which would combine uh, international law, international arbitration, and also employment law. And it, it turns out that uh, international administrative law is exactly this sort of combination because it involves international public law, it involves employment law, it, it involves also uh, arbitration, private public arbitration. So when I started looking at this <clears throat> particular area of law, one thing which was particularly <laughs> striking to me uh, was the issue of sources of law, of what actually constitutes international administrative law. So today my presentation will be about sources of international administrative law. I will start with uh, describing what international administrative law is and how it compares to traditional international public law. Then I will talk more specifically about sources of international administrative law and I will end um, speaking about normativity and hierarchy of sources of international administrative law. So the key problem uh, which I identified in my paper, which will be published uh, by, the, by George Washington International Law Review later this month, and which is available on, on internet for free, was that the most tribunals, most international administrative tribunals, do not even specify uh, sources of applicable law. And so administ international administrative tribunals are bodies which are are, well, which constitute parts of international organizations, intergovernmental organizations, which resolve disputes between employees of those organizations and the organization itself. So let's say there is a, you know, someone works as a, uh, as a project manager for the World Bank, and this person has a contract with the World Bank. And in accordance with this contract, let's say he has certain benefits, uh, certain rights, the salary, and so on. So if something goes wrong in, the, in this employment relation between, relationship between the World Bank and this employee, and there is a dispute, then the place to resolve this dispute would be uh, an international administrative tribunal, or more precisely the World Bank uh, administrative tribunal, rather than a domestic court or any other tribunal. 
So there is a, an, an autonomous system within each international organization which deals with uh, disputes involving employment law and employment involving rights and obligations of uh, uh, employees of those organizations. So I start my article with a quote uh, which was, uh, so with a, with a statement which was made by uh, a U.S. representative when the statute of the International Court of Justice was drafted. So in accordance with that statement, it was inconceivable that a government would agree, would agree to allow itself to be arraigned before a court which bases its sentences on its subjective conceptions of the principles on justice. So, in other words, the, the U.S. representative uh, insisted that the statute of the International Court of Justice uh, contains some sort of references to applicable law, because otherwise it looked that uh, the, the judges would decide disputes on the basis of their subjective uh, conceptions of what is right and what is wrong without any real uh, you know, basis in law. And unfortunately, most international administrative tribunals suffer from exactly this problem. So they do not list sources of, of law applicable at all. And they do not provide any hierarchy between internal law of, of this international uh, organization and uh, international public law or any other uh, sources of law outside, uh, which, you know, with, uh, we, which exist outside of the organization itself. However, there are, there are a number of different organizations and a number of different tribunals, and there are similarities between them and there are differences with them, and I will give a couple of examples closer to the end of my presentation about how those provisions of status of international administrative tribunals look uh, in practice. And you will see that uh, it's not... Well, that some organizations actually do list sources of international law and they do provide for a hierarchy. But before I move into that, uh, let me give you a bit of context. So currently over 80 intergovernmental organizations are recognized by the United Kingdom. So those organizations which have uh, immunity, which have their own you know, headquarters, and uh, well, which benefit from all those privileges which are accorded to international organizations under international law. And uh, one uh, body, there is a body which deals with which tries to come up with um, some sort of harmonized uh, rules and principles for international uh, organizations which, are, which constitute a part of the United Nations organization. And that body is called UN International Civil Service Commission. And uh, in accordance with this commission, there are over 100,000 staff members of international organizations serving in over 650 locations around the world. So you can see that the question of rights and uh, obligations of employees working for international organizations is not purely theoretical, it has a very practical dimension because so many people work for international organizations uh, within the United Nations system plus their organizations outside of the United Nations system which also uh, follow the, the same model. So when you look at uh, the system of uh, of international administrative law, uh, many or most international organizations have very similar provisions when it comes to hiring uh, international civil servants, uh, their benefits, their wages, rules on uh, discrimination, and so on. So although there are attempts to create 
a common system of salaries, allowances, and benefits. But uh, for most organizations, there is there are actually no uh, strict rules, and uh, each organization has its own uh, own set of rules. But surprisingly, they look very similar, and this is why we can speak about international administrative law because uh, all those regulations are are very similar. Uh, just a few examples of uh, international administrative tribunals which currently function in various parts of the world. Probably the oldest one is the International Labor Organization Administrative Tribunal. It has already decided over 3,000 uh, cases, so there are 3,000 judgments available on Internet, and it was established in 1947, and it continuously operates. And it has so many cases, not only because the employees of the International Labor Organization are particularly litigious or they initiate disputes uh, more frequently than others, but also because this uh, tribunal uh, takes care of several other international organizations based in Geneva and elsewhere. So if, let's say, there is a dispute involving um, I don't know, the organization, International Migration Organization, I'm not sure exactly about the name, or, or United Nations Commission on Refugees. So those organizations usually do not have their own international administrative tribunals, and they uh, decide their disputes, to kind of they outsource their dispute resolution to the International Labor Organization Administrative Tribunal. There, are all, there is also United Nations Disputes Tribunal, which um, is, uh, is a relatively new institution. In the past, there was another institution called United Nations Appeals Tribunal, but the idea is the same. So it's an international administrative tribunal which resolves disputes between employees and uh, the organization and the organization which employs them. Uh, the World Bank International Administrative Tribunal, the IMF Administrative Tribunal, uh, Administrative Tribunal of the Council of Europe, which will celebrate uh, next year its 50th anniversary. And I can mention the EBRD Administrative Tribunal, which uh, is uh, probably one of the youngest and which only has 10 published decisions, which is based in London. So, as I understand, there was a speaker from the EBRD at some point in, in the past, right, who uh, is involved in uh, work of this tribunal. So, since uh, 1920s, the, uh, the international administrative law has been developing and we can see that although there is no formal coordination between various international tribunals, the structure, scope and content of administrative regulations appear very similar from one organization to another. Uh, because there is no court of appeals, because you cannot have recourse against decisions taken by those tribunals to any court, to any domestic court or international court, uh, this procedures, the procedure of resolving disputes looks more like employment law disputes uh, rather than like proper dom domestic administrative uh, law dispute resolution. Because in domestic context, when you have an administrative dispute, administrative review, uh, there is always uh, an option to, to challenge the decision uh, to domestic courts to have some sort of appeal. So this appeal does not exist in uh, international administrative law because decisions of those tribunals are usually final uh, for, for the parties. So international administrative law involves inter intergovernmental organizations and employees of those organizations. There is no need to implement international administrative law into domestic law for it to be binding. 
So international administrative law is isolated from national substantive law uh, of uh, any country because of immunity which international organizations enjoy. So that makes it quite different from uh, other systems of uh, international dispute resolution and also from traditional sources of public international law. When you think about other systems of international dispute resolution, for example, uh, the international human rights uh, uh, law or uh, international investment law, uh, there is always some role of uh, domestic courts. Either you have to exhaust domestic <coughs> remedies and then only then you can go to an international court or there is some sort of interaction uh, between domestic courts and international tribunals or the breach itself, let's say the, the breach of a certain provision of a bilateral investment treaty results from failure of uh, domestic courts to deal with the, with the issue properly in denial of justice or uh, similar violations of investors' rights. So international administrative law is different because it does not involve any domestic court. So it's a completely self-contained system and because international organizations enjoy immunity, you cannot really either uh, enforce those judgments in, in domestic courts or challenge those judgments in domestic courts. Uh, is, so the question which, one of the questions with which my paper is dealing is whether this system of law is actually isolated not only from domestic law but from any law at all, from including international public law. And I'm trying to understand whether it's uh, good or bad. And let me give you an example which will illustrate why the question is important. Uh, a few decades ago, the United Nations Appeals Tribunal decide, decided a case called Mulan versus the Secretary General of the United Nations. And uh, in that case, uh, the one of employees of the United Nations organization challenged uh, internal rules of the United Nations, which provided that only male dependents can benefit from having their non-dependent spouses travel home at the organization's expense. So in other words, the rule was that if you are a male employee, then you can, uh, your wife can benefit from free tickets back to your own country. Uh, but if you are a female employee, then uh, your husband cannot benefit from the same rule. And the dispute ended up at the United Nations Administrative Tribunal, and the court of the tribunal uh, ruled that because the rule of uh, the, the internal rule of the organization was so specific, it actually prevailed over any other rules, uh, rules of general principles of international law or any other rules which are out there, because it was specific and uh, because there, there was a reason to have this rule. And so it ruled against the applicant in that case. So in fact, the rule uh, breached not only the uh, United Nations uh, UN Charter, which, uh, which uh, contains a provision about non-discrimination, but also a number of international human rights convention, conventions, a number of uh, uh, ILO, International Labour Organization conventions and uh, recommendations, which all speak in favor of the principle of non-discrimination on the basis of sex. So the employee had no other way well, no other recourse. He had, uh, she actually had to just accept that situation, and uh, you know, because you cannot challenge that decision anywhere. So that uh, this is this is just one example why 
the question is not abstract but uh, has a very practical uh, dimension to it. So what I did, uh, I analyzed statutes of uh, uh, international administrative tribunals and other constituent documents of uh, international administrative tribunals to see how they treat the issue of applicable law, whether there is any hierarchy. I also analyzed case law of international administrative tribunal to see what uh, tribunals uh, actually thought about uh, the hierarchy, about sources of law which they applied. So I paid attention to applicable sources of law and in particular to applicability of international law and international public law. And I was trying to understand the central question was actually whether in case of uh, a contradiction between a rule of an, an internal rule uh, of, of that of a particular international organization and the rule of international public law, how this contradiction is, is resolved. So when I analyzed international administrative law, I uh, tried to compare it, the concepts which, of sources of law which uh, exist in international administrative law with the concept of, international, of sources of international law in international public law. So when one source which exists in international administrative law but, but does not exist in international public law is contract of employment. So you have a, a regular contract one uh, between an employer and an employee which provides for rights and obligations of, of the parties. So you don't have anything similar really in international public law. Internal law of uh, international organizations uh, resembles domestic law uh, in the context of international public law because it's, uh, it's kind of secondary to... Well, it's not really secondary, but it's adopted by the organization itself and uh, it's autonomous from international public law. The practice of organization looks similar to customary international law, uh, and both international administrative law and international public law uh, refer to generally recognized principles, generally recognized principles or general principles of law. And finally, uh, both uh, international administrative law and international public law refer to decisions of other tribunals and scholarly writings. They do not uh, refer to them as sources of law, but rather as uh, evidence of, uh, of rules of international law. So in accordance, and that kind of makes sense, uh, even if you think about the, uh, the statute of the International Court of Justice, which distinguishes between uh, primary sources and secondary sources, or uh, sources of international law and evidence of international law. So my findings were that there were no accepted uh, overarching principles or rules on suprem supremacy of uh, international law in most under statutes of most international administrative tribunals. And although the although tribunals are dealing with uh, issues of employment law with, with labor rights, uh, no, almost not a single tribunal made a reference to international human rights or international uh, labor law. Even the ILO uh, administrative tribunal, the International Labor Organization administrative tribunal, uh, did not actually rely uh, on, uh, on, on ILO conventions or recommendations. So you would expect that if the ILO was created for the purpose of protecting workers' rights, to create all those sophisticated rules, how to you know, make sure that uh, the interests and the rights of employees are uh, taken, to, taken into account and um, respected, 
so surprisingly, even the ILO Administrative Tribunal actually made very little you know, references to, uh, to ILO conventions. And I was trying to publish my article in the International Labor Review, and uh, they sent the piece for peer review to one of the people working for that International Administrative Tribunal. And they were very upset that I'm um, you know, saying, well, look at the ILO at International Administrative Tribunal. They pay no interest in international conventions, in ILO conventions and recommendations. So I received a very bad review, so I had to submit my paper to an American law review, and they were not uh, that sensitive. So, uh, so, uh, so it's quite strange, but that's, that remains the fact. So usually international administrative tribunals are ref referring only to internal law of the organization and the applicable uh, contracts, the, the employment contract. They say, well, the contract says this, our interpretation of the contract is that, and as a result, we rule in favor of, of the employee or of the employer. And unlike domestic law, uh, the problem with um, uh, public or sorry with international administrative law is that there are very few checks and balances because the system is so much is so remote from uh, domestic controls. It's also remote from control of governments because governments just outsource yeah, to national dispute resolution to uh, international administrative tribunals without paying much attention. So there are not that many checks and balances. So if you think of a domestic legal system, uh, then you have before a certain law, and a certain employment law is adopted, there, there is a legislative process which takes into account interests of employees, of employers, trade unions, there are public consultations, there are often media debates, particularly in countries where trade unions are strong. International administrative law <clears throat> does not really have the same level of uh, democratic legitimacy and there, is no, uh, there are no clear rules on sources of law, no hierarchy, and the cases are decided by those who have very, actually very little knowledge of international uh, labor law, and uh, often they also have very little law, very little knowledge of public international law. So if you look, for example, at those who sit on the EBRD administrative tribunal, most people have really very limited experience with international public law. These are usually practitioners in the area of international commercial arbitration. Sometimes they have some experience working with universal state arbitration, but not really with uh, employment law or with uh, traditional public international law. So why defining sources? Why do we need to define sources? I already gave you one example which illustrates why it could be very useful to have sources and to have a certain hierarchy. And there are also other reasons, more theoretical reasons. The International Law Association, in one of its reports, suggested that international administrative tribunals should refrain from adopting too restrictive approach to the sources of law at the tribunal's disposal. And my analysis of uh, tribunals' practice and of their statutes suggests that actually the opposite problem is uh, more serious, that it's really difficult to see what are applicable sources of law uh, on the basis of which the tribunals operate and which they uh, use to decide uh, the rights and the obligations of, uh, uh, of, of the disputes in front of them. So the, the other problem with that is that international administrative tribunals, as any dispute resolution bodies, are not supposed to create law. They, are, they were created to apply law. And if you don't understand 
what law you need to apply in the first place, or if you uh, limit the concept of law just to internal rules of a particular organization, then basically international administrative tribunals are involved in uh, creating law, in lawmaking activities, rather than in uh, resolving disputes. And so instead of applying law, they are, they are acting in, uh, as legislators, which was not the purpose for which they were established. The other reason why it's, it's important to have um, sources of law in the hierarchy um, is because there must be equality of the parties. So when you're thinking about a typical dispute, you have a, an employee of an international uh, organization who very often comes from uh, a foreign jurisdiction. Let's say you, know, you have uh, an employee of the, of the International Monetary Fund who comes from, from Ghana, who, who, have, who has a contract for two years, the, uh, the person moves to Washington DC, uh, works there, and then there is something wrong goes with the contract, and this person is not necessarily a very is not necessarily a lawyer, and actually most uh, employees of international organizations are not lawyers, and uh, they are quite you know, they are afraid maybe of losing their visa status because if they lose their job, then they they will have to go back to their own country, and uh, so if you do not really have clear rules stipulated in either in the statute of the, of the tribunal or somewhere else. Uh, the employers, uh, employees very often do not understand what to expect, what kind of conduct is legal, what conduct is illegal, what sources of law, well, what, what actually, uh, what is binding and what is not binding, what is desirable and what is mandatory. So there is the distinction between rules of law and uh, uh, and non-legal norms is actually blurred. And uh, if you are not a lawyer, if you are not uh, able to understand previous legal decisions and how they may impact your employment relations, then there is an apparent uh, lack of equality between an organization which is usually staffed with lawyers, which has lawyers working on employment disputes, on other operational matters, and an, empl and an employee who comes from, from another country very often with limited knowledge of law, maybe even with limited linguistic skills. So those people, uh, the, the employees, would have no incentive to use tribunals uh, when it's difficult to distinguish between law and political maneuvering and when they're just not sure how to proceed uh, and whether their, their, their rights were you know, violated or not. The other concept which is related to the concept of equality is Un unconstitutional vagueness and unenforceability. So although most organizations have constitutions or you know, different constituent documents, uh, and this concept is not really from the area of international public law, but uh, it comes from the US law, I think it's quite handy uh, in, in this particular context. So under the US law, under US federal law, this concept According to this concept, a statute must define the prescribed contract, conduct with sufficient definiteness that ordinary people can understand what conduct is prohibited and in what manner that does not encourage arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. So in other words, if the rule is not definite enough, if it's vague, then uh, this rule can be unenforceable under the US law because uh, it's, it's too vague and, it's, if, and for an ordinary person it's impossible to understand uh, what are the, the legal boundaries, what conduct is legal and what conduct is illegal. So 
This is why arbitrary enforcement uh, under U.S. law, arbitrary enforcement would violate the principle of uh, equal protection. And I think that principle also implies, uh, applies in the context of international administrative law when uh, it's really difficult to understand what are legal rules and what rules are, uh, are not really legal rules. When you think about public international law, there is a bit more clarity on what constitutes sources of international law and whether there is any hierarchy. Although the hierarchy between various sources of public international law is uh, a debated point, but there is a more or less a settled opinion among scholars of international law that if there is a contradiction between provisions of domestic law and provisions of an international treaty, then uh, a state cannot justify non-compliance with the treaty by references to its domestic law, because this is what the Vienna Convention on the Law of the, of the Treaties provides. So there is no principle, no similar principle in the context of international administrative law. If there is a, an internal rule which violates uh, in either a treaty or a general principle of international administrative law, there is no rule which says what actually uh, you don't apply the, the internal uh, law of that organization because of that violation. So when it comes to status of international administrative tribunals, they can be classified into three major groups. The first group uh, includes statutes which contain no mentioning of applicable sources of law. So they're just so silent. They don't say what law applies. The second group is uh, it consists of uh, tribunals which list sources of applicable law, but they are silent on the issue of hierarchy. So they say that, let's say, the tribunal should apply internal law, uh, employment contract, and general principles of international administrative law, but they're not saying anything about what happens in case of conflict. And finally, there are a few statutes of international administrative tribunals which have both uh, listed sources of applicable law and also establish a hierarchy between those sources. So let me give you an example. The uh, administrative tribunal of the European Bank uh, for Construction and Development provides that the tribunal shall base its decisions on the provisions of the staff member's contract of employment, the internal law of the bank and generally recognized principles of international law. So it lists those sources as, um, as sources of law which uh, are applied by, uh, by that particular tribunal. What is more interesting is that this statute also establishes a hierarchy between internal law and uh, general principles of international administrative law. So according to the statute, decisions of the board of directors or the board of governors should not breach international administrative law. So you can see that international administrative law uh, is, although it's not defined in the statute, it has, uh, it's, it has a higher force, I mean, it's, uh, it trumps any rules, internal rules, which violate this international administrative law. So when uh, tribunals constituted under the um, statute of, international, of the European Bank for Construction and Development face a situation similar to the one which we described at the very beginning, uh, of this presentation, when there is an apparent rule, well, there is a rule uh, which provides for discrimination on the basis of sex, the tribunal would say, no, we cannot apply this rule because it violates international administrative law. 
And this tribunal, I must say, is a relatively uh, recent uh, institution. Well, it was created not that long time ago, and this is why the, its statute is relatively modern. So hopefully that reflects a modern trend, which uh, shows that there must be a hierarchy between various sources of law, and international law, international administrative law, should be at the top of this hierarchy. Uh, to give an example of another international administrative tribunal which follows an opposite approach. So the International Monetary Fund has its own tribunal and the statute of this tribunal uh, provides that the tribunal should apply the law of the fund including generally recognized principle of international administrative law. So the, the statute of that uh, tribunal actually considers international administrative law as a part of the law of the fund. But what is more interesting the official commentary to the statute of that tribunal provides that if uh, the tribunal applies general principles of international law, those principles, uh, this application, cannot derogate from the powers conferred on the organs of the fund, including the executive board. So in other words, in other words if there is a rule of international administrative law, let's say uh, against discrimination or a certain rule, uh, let's say, non-retroactive, that it's not possible to apply uh, regulations retroactively, and there is a rule of internal law of that particular organization saying that you can apply uh, retroactively that uh, provision, then the tribunal will have to follow the internal rule, although it contradicts international administrative law. Right? So, very different approaches. EBRD says that there is a hierarchy. At the, at the top of, of the hierarchy, we have international administrative law. Uh, the International Monetary Fund uh, has a different approach. They say that there is a hierarchy, but at the top of this hierarchy, we have uh, decisions of, uh, of its executive bodies. So what I'm suggesting is there should be a hierarchy, a normative hierarchy between various sources of uh, international administrative law. So first, those sources should be uh, enumerated, they should be listed in uh, relevant statutes of international administrative tribunals. There must be a hierarchy with uh, general principles of law and general principles of international administrative law at the top of that hierarchy. So if, that, if there is a conflict between either the contract of employment or uh, internal law of the organization and general principles of international administrative law, general principles of international law should prevail. The other point I'm making in my article is that tribunals should rely more on the international uh, labor organization conventions, recommendations, and uh, other uh, human rights instruments because they were created uh, to, well, they, in a way, they summarize general principles uh, of law and uh, uh, they are creatures of international law as well. And so it just does not make much sense that a tribunal established by the International Labor Organization stays away from uh, the ILO conventions and recommendations as though they, they live in a completely uh, different world. That approach would offer more coherence and predictability. And uh, in my view, without procedural regularity without having this uh, listed sources of law and a hierarchy between those sources, it's really difficult to have justice, it's really difficult to ensure that there is equality between, uh, equality in case of dispute between employees and uh, 
and uh, international uh, organizations, intergovernmental organizations. How can that uh, be done? So I think there are a few ways uh, which uh, tribunals and the international community, the international community in general, can follow to achieve this goal. The first one is administrative tribunals themselves should, through their case law, through their practice, qualify, clarify the sources of applicable law and the normative hierarchy between them. So even without changing the statutes of international administrative tribunals, those tribunals can refer to the sources of law which they use to decide uh, a particular dispute. So they can say, well, we apply this principle of non-discrimination because it's widely accepted. There is a, a certain ILO convention or there is a you know, European Human Rights Convention which, which all reflect this principle. And so this is why we you know, decide in favor, I'll say, of the employee. The other way is to amend statutes of international administrative tribunals to achieve the same goal. So I already showed you the statute of the, of the EBRD administrative tribunal, which establishes the sources of law and the hierarchy. So I suggest that other international administrative tribunals should follow uh, the same approach. Finally, yeah, in the International Law Commission or other bodies in charge of harmonization of international law may develop principles similar to draft articles on the responsibility of international organizations to codify general principles of international administrative law and explicitly establish their supremacy over internal law of international organizations. So in a way, it's, that would help understand what constitutes, uh, what are the rules of international administrative law, uh, what are the general principles because so far only scholars, uh, those who write about international administrative law, and there are not many of them, have you know, attempted to, 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 uh, to put it all in one place to, to show what kind of uh, principles exist, what principles are more important, what, are, what principles are less important. So I think there is a role for international organizations to play here. <laughs> Uh, so, as I mentioned, the, the, my paper is available on internet, on SSRN, and if you have any questions now, please feel free to ask them, and I will also welcome your comments if you want to send them by email. My email address is here.